Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Hi, I'm Emily, and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, your sermon covered Genesis 9, verse 18 through 10, verse 32. How have some people misinterpreted the curse for Ham's actions in ways that motivate racism or ethnic hatred? There's a really sad tradition in early American uh, preaching, particularly in the early 1800s, where many, uh, particularly Southern preachers, used the text that we looked at this week in Genesis chapter 9 and the curse on Canaan through Ham as a biblical endorsement of slavery. And the way that they did this, as convoluted as that sounds to our ears, the way that they did this is that they made the claim that uh, as a result of Ham's sin, Noah wakes up, curses Canaan, and then if we trace the development of Canaan's family into the eventual Canaanites, and then using some extra biblical sources and then some questionable uh, historiography to assume that those people then, when they were dispossessed from the land of Canaan through Israel's taking over the land, that they made their way to the regions of Africa and were dark-skinned and became uh, people who lived on the African continent who were then captured and brought over by the slave traders. So they appeal to the fact that this curse that's given to Canaan also includes this stipulation of servitude to Shem and Japheth. And therefore, they, they connect that these people who are cursed, their descendants are always intended to be servants. Doesn't that imply a, a biblical endorsement of slavery of these people? A really grotesque part of not only American history, but of American evangelicalism and American, and American preaching. That is a gross distortion of the biblical text. What we have here is, I think, a prophetic announcement that anticipates that as a result of, of Ham's failure to honor his father, that he is being removed from the line of blessing. But that doesn't result in a um, decrease in the moral responsibility of Canaan or anyone that's going to come from Canaan's family line. We're going to find out as we encounter them later that they are going to be idolaters who continually reject God's covenant promises. And as a result, they are under God's just wrath for the ways in which they enact evil upon themselves, upon others, and in the land of Canaan. But we're also going to see some unique divergences from that traditional story of, of these people who are against God and who become pagans. We're going to see uh, people like Ruth who are out of the line of promise by genealogy, but who, according to their faith, God not only incorporates into the blessing given to Israel, but actually uh, will be incorporated into the very genealogy of Christ. So this isn't a statement that differentiates a classification of humanity into those who are inferior and superior. It instead recognizes the spiritual after effects of Hamson. Is it possible that Canaan was involved in sinning against Noah in some way? And would that explain why Canaan is cursed instead of Ham? Yeah, there have been some who have suggested that perhaps Canaan is more involved in the whole scenario than what the Bible articulates to us. The problem with that, of course, is that it, it that relies on conjecture. There is this issue that we have to sort through about why is it Canaan, who seems to bear the brunt of his father's sin in terms of the curse that's given, but the Bible doesn't give us any indication there in Genesis 9 that Canaan is around when his father is seeing uh, Noah in that situation and then dishonoring his father. So Canaan doesn't seem to feature into the actual sin itself. I think instead we need to understand that 
Ham is Noah's youngest son. Canaan is Ham's youngest son. And so therefore this prophecy and this curse that's given to Canaan is a recognition that that Ham's kind of dishonoring of his father will be repeated in the ways in which Canaan's descendants are going to be like their grandfather and be a kind of people who dishonor the religious tradition that's going to come down through Shem and Japheth. And as a result, they're going to find themselves outside of the covenant promises as they continue to reject the God of their forefathers. In light of Noah's curse on Canaan for Ham's sin, does God judge children for their parents' sin? Well, Deuteronomy 24, 16, we read that that children should not be um, killed for their father's crimes. In other words, if, if a father commits a capital offense, the children should not bear the brunt of that responsibility. And then at other times in the Old Testament, we also see clear examples where there are generational effects. So I think that there's two issues that are here. In terms of simple matters of, of justice, a crime, and then its immediate penalty, God says that everyone needs to bear the responsibility for their own sin. But that doesn't negate the fact that there are generational consequences as a result of our sinful failures. We see this, for example, in uh, the case of Saul. Saul's departure, King Saul, from following God, will result in the kingship being taken away, not only from him, but from all of his descendants. And as a result of his own sin, we see moral failure that passes through most of his, his family, with some notable exceptions like his son Jonathan. But it results in the near wiping out of his whole household. And so there are these generational after effects that flow out of, of his sin. It's an important reminder to us that while each of us bears a moral responsibility for the sins that we do, and that we can break the cycles of dysfunction within our family or for those who have sinned against us, we do always need to be cognizant of the fact that it's seldom the case that our sin doesn't affect others. Our sin always happens in community. So whether that's our immediate family or our neighbor or those around us or those who are just watching and then who pursue the same paths of folly that we have paved for them, our sin always affects others. And so we need to bear that in mind as we count the cost of what it means to pursue the desires of our hearts. Is the emphasis on honoring your parents mostly connected to the Old Testament law, or does it apply to believers today? You know, when we look at Old Testament texts, there's always this question of what do we bring forward into commands that are still given to New Covenant believers versus those that are part of the Mosaic law or part of uh, laws that only involve the nation of Israel. But we see that in the New Testament, this issue of honoring parents is more closely connected to a creation ordinance than it is to Old Testament law. And so it's brought forward as an ongoing expectation from God to uh, the New Testament believers. So in Ephesians chapter 6, children are told to honor and respect their parents. There's also commands that are given to parents about not inciting their children to wrath and about how parents are to organize their household in a godly way. So it's a requirement for elders and deacons, for example, that they be able to handle well their own households and the management of their children. So this relationship between children and parents is an important one to God. Like I mentioned on Sunday, it's interesting to me to note that the issue of honoring parents is going to be one of the one of the signs of the end times is as culture continues to degenerate into lower and lower states of depravity, one of the marks that the New Testament gives us of the decadence of culture is that increasingly children will feel fit to dishonor their parents, not just disagree or, or pursue different you know, 
ways of living than their parents might have chosen. But to actively dishonor, disregard uh, their parents is going to be a mark of evil in the end. What would have been a righteous response from Ham after seeing his father? I think the paradigm that Ham should have taken is exactly the one that Shem and Japheth took. If Ham was a righteous man, the moment that he encountered his father in that situation, he should have immediately averted his gaze. And then rather than going and telling others about the state in which he found his father, he would have found a means of covering Noah and then in in an appropriate way, covering his father and making sure that no one else saw his father in that exposed and vulnerable situation. So Shem and Japheth model for us what Ham's righteous response ought to have been. And so in that contrast, it helps to expose the true evil of Ham's response. Their righteous character reveals the deficiency in Ham's character. In theory, if Noah hadn't fallen into sin, Ham wouldn't have been in the position to react in the sinful way that he did. Why do you suppose there's no mention of Noah showing remorse or taking some responsibility for what transpired? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I think there's two things that I'd like to comment there. I think that it's absolutely right to note that Noah's sin provides the opportunity that leads to Ham's sin. And we need to be cognizant of that, that our sins can not only affect others, but they can in fact pave the way for other people to fall into sins. We can be a stumbling block in someone else's way, which is exactly what Noah does. And the last thing that any parent would ever want is to be the cause of sin in their children. Again, their children bear moral responsibility for what they do. They, they still have a choice not to respond sinfully. But the last thing that I want is to make it easier for my children to sin as a result of my own failure in moral conduct. That being said, why don't we see Noah repenting of his sinful behavior in this text? His response seems very self-justifiably angry of, I can't believe my son did this to me. Blessing to you, Shem and Japheth, for treating me with honor and curse you, Canaan, for being the son of my wretched son, Ham. That's sort of the feeling of the rest of that text. And we may be just in the construction of that narrative. We might be reading a tone into the text there that isn't there in in just sort of the Hebrew narrative is very curt meaning that it's very light on sort of the embellishment of details. The facts that are there are important, and we should notice them because it's not containing a lot of superfluous information. It's very efficient in its communication of the facts. And so sometimes the emotional nuance, uh, we can overread that into narrative. So we need to be careful not to do that. At the same time, I think the Bible is very honest with us about its heroes, and the fact that they are flawed, sinful men and women who desperately are in need of a Savior. And so while it would be nice to be able to tie a ribbon on Noah's life and say, this is a man who began well and then who finished well, and yes, there's a moral failure there in between, but we see Noah finishing strong. That's not the way that the Bible always ends our stories with even great men and women of the faith. It's a reminder to us that we need to continue to maintain a heart that is soft toward God and is also alive to the reality of our own sin and willing to constantly um, protect ourselves. And then when we do fall, to place ourselves in humble reliance on God and be able to confess and repent of our sin. The fact that we don't see Noah doing that, perhaps it's an indication of the hardness of Noah's heart there at the end of his life and obstinance. It may also just be that that particular element of the story was not what was most important for us to understand. We don't really know. 
I think that it is intentional, though, how Noah goes out of the story. It's just a reminder, every one of these so-called heroes of the Old Testament, they're not the hero we truly need. We need a new and better Adam. And it wasn't Noah. It always was pointing to Christ. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.